Ahoy, landlubbers. Welcome aboard the SS Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. It's your captain speaking, Alastair Murden. I hope you've packed your sunscreen, boat shoes, and more importantly, your lucky talismans, because it's time to set sail on the high seas, a place where mystical practices keep our fears of the ocean at bay. Today, we're diving deep into a superstition that may seem celebratory. And how could it not? It involves champagne. Christening a ship is the practice of popping a bottle of bubbly prior to its maiden voyage, but it's not really a joyous occasion. It's actually a serious, sacred practice, and if it's forgotten, it can have deadly consequences. To explain what we're talking about, let's start with the story behind one of the deadliest nautical accidents in history, the RMS Titanic. The year was 1912. The Titanic was the largest ship at the time, measuring over 880 feet long. With its thick steel hull and watertight compartments, it was deemed an engineering marvel unsinkable. Tragically, that proved false. On April 14th, halfway through the ship's journey from England to New York, the Titanic collided with an iceberg. Less than three hours later, it sank in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. 1,500 people died. There have been various explanations for the tragedy too few lifeboats, a distracted captain, and owners who were more concerned about speed and luxury than safety. And yet, some say the Titanic was doomed for another reason. It was never christened. That's right, the owners didn't believe in the practice. Whether or not that caused the Titanic to sink, we'll never know. But the fact remains, Sailors put their faith in champagne to protect their ships. And in today's story, we'll see what happens when a ship's owner passes on the bubbly. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Coming up, a captain loses direction in life and on the water. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Captain's Log, April 10th, 1985. 0500 hours. Newport Shipyard. Wind, 10 knots from the northeast and rising. I wake to the dockmaster knocking on my car window. I roll down the misty glass. He's got a job for me, he says. He doesn't have many details about it, 
only that the original captain suddenly quit, but for several days, I've been sleeping in my car. So I take it. 0530 hours. I arrive at the dock. There's a bustle of activity around a brand new yacht dropped in the water last night. Dawnlight sparkles on the freshly painted hull and chrome railings. On the deck, crewmen coil lines. An engineer maneuvers a crane, loading equipment into the cargo hold. A cook carries crates of eggs, vegetables, and loaves of bread up the gangplank. My stomach rumbles. I pause a second on the dock and admire the ship. She's unlike any other vessel I've seen before, as if an Arctic research vessel had mated with a Mediterranean pleasure yacht. It's a strange hybrid of industrial cranes and luxurious hot tubs. I wonder if the owner thinks he'll hunt pirate's gold in between cocktail parties. Doesn't matter to me as long as we get moving fast. There's a storm coming in. 0545 hours. I heave my duffel into the captain's bunk and meet my first mate, Hicks. She grips my hand as if happy to see me again. Heard you were sleeping in your car. Kathy kick you out? I shake my head. She wants us to settle down and have kids. Hicks gives me the knowing look of a sailor. So, you abandoned ship. I know Hicks has been there before, so I open up to her. Tell her that kind of responsibility scares me more than rogue waves. Besides, I've never been good with kids. I'm more at home with compasses and dock lines than children. Then, to change the subject, I gesture to the boat. Who's the lucky guy? Hicks tells me it's owned by some Wall Street big shot, Mathis Halcyon. Didn't I see the boat's name? In gold leaf? Offshore account, she says. I've worked with some outlandish owners in the past, but this guy sounds like a real piece of work. I ask Hicks what happened to the previous captain. She shrugs. Heard he asked too many questions. 0600 hours. I start my captain's inspection of the ship. If I was impressed by the boat's exterior, I'm downright awestruck inside. The engine room looks more like an accounting office. Everything is tidy and labeled, not a speck of oil. The captain's bridge is outfitted with more radar, sonar, and GPS than NASA launch control. Even the lifeboat lashed to the deck has a jaw-dropping array of electronics. The strangest part of the ship, however, is the cargo hold, full of wooden crates. I pry one open to find unmanned remote submarines and deep-sea diving equipment. Like, he really does want to find pirate's gold. These rich guys and their toys. 0720 hours. I wrap up my inspection and hear a deafening noise outside. The crew and I run out to the deck. A sleek black helicopter touches down on the stern, depositing a young man in a crisp grey suit and alligator loafers. It can only be Mathis Halcyon. He saunters over. I introduce myself as captain, point to his shoes, and tell him they'll scratch his decking. Mathis tosses his head back and laughs. If that happens, he'll just buy a new deck, he says. He also reminds me that if he wanted my input, he'd pay me more. Otherwise, I'm just his trained sea monkey, here to fulfill Coast Guard regs. His yacht has so much cutting-edge navigational gear, it can sail itself. If it weren't for the nosy government requiring a captain, he'd take it out solo. I grit my teeth. 
Ah, sir. This sea monkey recommends we get underway ASAP. Got a storm coming in. Mathis glances at his Rolex and shakes his head. Not until my nephew arrives. My sister wants the little snot to see the ocean. I try to hide my annoyance. That means one thing. Not only are we crew, we're also babysitters. Of course, I don't say that to Mathis, but I remind him that every moment we delay, the more dangerous the seas will get. If we wait too long, we might get stuck in port. Mathis shrugs. Weather doesn't matter. With all our gadgets, we can sail through a hurricane and have a ball. I give him a half-hearted salute. None of these guys ever appreciate the power of the ocean. They think it's something you can buy or sell. I tell the crew to ready the ship to go at a moment's notice. I won't waste any time. Zero nine hundred hours. Wind steadily increasing. Barometer dropping. While we wait for the kid to arrive, I have Hicks rig a bottle of champagne to christen the ship. Before she can release it, a limousine screeches to a stop on the dock. A kid, maybe six, eight, ten, I don't know, jumps out and runs full tilt up the gangway. An armada of nannies, nurses and servants chase after him. Halcyon's nephew. I cut my hands and yell at the kid, No running! You're going to slip and fall in. The kid slows a beat, but then continues unabated towards us, waving his arms in the air. Can I break the bottle? At the same moment, Mathis emerges onto the foredeck, no longer dressed in his suit. He's wearing every piece of yacht club attire imaginable. Polo shirt with embroidered lobsters, cable knit sweater draped over his shoulders, squeaky white boat shoes. Captain... What the heck are you doing to my boat? Before I can respond, the kid chimes in. Christening the ship, Uncle Mathis. It's good luck before the maiden voyage. He pulls the souvenir skipper hat out of his pocket and puts it on. I glance at him, surprised. Mathis waves at us like flies. Fine, go ahead. But then he points at the bottle. What brand of champagne is that? I look at the white and black label. It's a bottle of famous French champagne that's pretty much the global standard. Mathis shakes his head. You're not christening my ship with that swill. I want good stuff from my vineyard. Our cook, who's standing nearby, shakes his head helplessly. No one had told him the owner had a vineyard. He can try to find someone in a nearby store, but it might take an extra hour. I glance at the clouds rolling in and tell Mathis if we were going to set sail today, it's this or nothing. He crosses his arms and tells us to forget the silly superstition. Just set sail. I turn to the crew. Several of them have a look of fear on their faces. I tell them not to worry. I'll parlay with Mathis and straighten things out. Maybe we can radio ahead to Nassau. They'll have a bottle of his fancy champagne waiting for us. We'll christen the ship there. Everything will be fine. 1100 hours. We're officially underway. Clouds are rolling in from the north, sustained winds of 20 knots. Good thing we're headed south. On the way out of the harbor, a pod of dolphins escorts us, playfully jumping in our bow wave. Of course, 
The nephew hangs over the railing to see them. He nearly falls in. 11.30 hours. Halcyon strolls onto the captain's bridge. He looks at my charts and tells me we have the wrong heading. I remind him I wasn't given one, but I assumed he wanted to hit the Bahamas. Mathis grins deviously at me. Change course. We're not going to the tropics. I nod. Perhaps he doesn't like crowds. It's early in the season for the Mediterranean, I say. But you can use your toys to find some ancient Greek treasure. Mathis shakes his head at that too. We're not going there either. He then tells me nonchalantly, we're going to the North Atlantic. My mouth hangs open. You can't be serious. Mathis gestures around the bridge to the sonar arrays and out on the deck to the industrial crane. This baby isn't for hunting gold doubloons around St. Bart's or Mykonos. He taps the captain's wheel. We're going to find the biggest shipwreck ever. The Titanic. My ears must be playing tricks on me. The Titanic. People have been searching for years. It's a needle in a haystack. Mathis pulls up a computerized chart of the Titanic's last known location and a search grid he plotted. I modified my stock picking software to determine the most probable location based on currents and winds. We're going to find it, Captain. We're going to be famous. And I'm going to furnish my office with souvenirs from its deck. I squinted him in disbelief. So, we're grave robbers? Mathis wags his finger at me. He points out that grave robbing is a crime, but scientific research will get you on the cover of Time magazine. So he recommends I change my word choice, or he'll have his chopper come pick me up. At that moment, Mathis's nephew tears onto the bridge. Uncle Mathis, are we there yet? I want to see the Titanic. I love that story. Captain Edward Smith is my hero. Not now, Otis. Mathis picks the boy up and redirects him out the door. Then he shoots me a stern look. Plot a course for the Newfoundland coast. I'll do the rest. I swallow the lump in my throat and turn the ship bearing 040. Instead of the storm at our back on the way to the turquoise waters of the Caribbean, we're heading directly towards the dark clouds into the deadly North Atlantic. April 11th, 1985, 1800 hours. We've been full steam ahead for over a day, heading north toward Newfoundland. Winds are approaching gale force. Seas are 15 feet and rising. While I struggle to keep the ship on course, Mathis's nephew darts onto the bridge again, just what I need. You should run along and find your uncle, I tell him. He doesn't listen. Instead, he salutes me. I'm Otis, sir. Can I be one of your deckhands? I try to conceal my annoyance. Maybe after we get through this nasty storm, okay? Now, get going. He glances over at my instrument panel. Barometer's still falling. Twenty-nine and a half. That's bad, right? I cock my head at him, confused. How do you know that? 
The boy shrugs like he just told me dinosaurs have scales. I want to be a captain like you someday. I can't help but chuckle a little. I'll tell you what. If you let me get back to work, I'll show you how to steer it when we're back at port. The kid didn't give up. He pointed at the wind gauge and told me he knew the Beaufort scale. We're in a force seven, he said. 28 to 33 knots. I reach for my radio to call Hicks to escort the kid below deck, but I stop. Otis reminds me how I felt on my first ship. After a moment, I turn back to him. Do you know how to use the weather radar? 1900 hours. After showing Otis all the other instruments, I even let him steer for a moment until a 30-foot wave smashes the ship broadside, punching the starboard hatch open. Wind and spray howl inside. I tell Otis it's getting too dangerous. He should head back to his cabin. As he goes, I catch myself smiling. But I don't have time to think about that now. It takes every bit of muscle and concentration to keep the ship on course. 2,300 hours. I feel like I'm going to collapse. I've been wrestling with the helm for over 24 hours. We're nearing the search grid for the Titanic, so I radio Hicks to relieve me. 23.30 hours. I turn over the bridge to Hicks. She has the night watch. I assure her the storm would blow over eventually. Besides, the ship is outfitted with the most advanced weather and charting tools known to man. It'll be fine while I get some shut-eye. Zero one hundred hours. I wake to someone pounding at my cabin door. When I open the door, a flashlight momentarily blinds me. A deckhand apologizes for waking me, but Hicks needs me on the bridge ASAP. As I sprint down the passageway, I realize that everything's dark except for a couple dim emergency lights. When I arrive on the bridge, Hicks is staring out the front windscreen. What's happening? I yell to her. Is the storm getting worse? She doesn't speak. She simply points ahead. I look outside and see that the wind and seas are calm. There's barely a ripple on the surface. We seem to be in the eye of the storm, surrounded completely by a wall of clouds. Flashes of lightning illuminate an enormous dome around us. I turn back to Hicks. Where are we? That's the problem, she says. I don't know. She gestures to the various chart plotters and GPS units. I look. They're all blank. Coming up, a desperate pop of champagne might be too little too late. Hi, listeners. I'm Tom Morton, host of Parcast's landmark show, Real Pirates, where we set sail alongside history's most notorious villains. Dive into their world during the golden age of piracy in an immersive audio experience. Listen as experts reveal the reality of life under the black flag. There is no evidence that I have ever seen of any pirate burying their treasure. Catch our previous episodes on Major Steve Bonnet, Charles Vane, and Blackbeard. 
Blackbeard himself as a pirate was a larger-than-life figure. He would put candles into his hair to frighten his victims. And still to come are the stories of Anne Bonny, Captain Kidd, and Henry Morgan. Join us for new episodes every Monday as we follow the rise and fall of the most legendary outlaws ever to sail the seven seas. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen to Real Pirates for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Captain's log. 0110 hours, somewhere in the North Atlantic. I'm on the bridge in the middle of a deadly storm. All our instruments are dead. I flick the power buttons, but none come back on. What the hell happened? I screamed to Hicks, my first mate. She tells me everything just went out. Might be electrical interference, or perhaps lightning hit the tower. All she knows is the whole ship suddenly went dark. I stare at the blank instruments. How long have they been like this? She shrugs. She had been watching the strange dome of lightning and lost track of time. It could have been an hour or two. I realize we're so far off course, there's no way to estimate where we are. Just then, Mathis Halcyon bursts onto the bridge wearing silk pajamas and slippers. What's wrong? He yells. I tell him the ship's electronics are down, which means we have no way of knowing where we are. He shakes his head in disbelief. <laughs> that, that's impossible. We have the most advanced navigation systems in the world. I shrug at him. Perhaps, but not if they're dead. I grab the radio from his cradle and mash the button. Mayday! Mayday! This is offshore account calling all channels in need of emergency assistance. There's no response. The radios aren't working either. We're officially lost. 0130 hours. I order a hard reset of all electronic circuits on board, but it doesn't work. I dust off my old sextant and celestial navigation charts, but the clouds make it impossible to see any star or planet. We won't be able to get a reading until the sun rises. For now, I estimate we're somewhere off of St. George's Bank, but I can't be sure. For all I know, we might be sailing in circles. Immediately, I order all hands on deck. I inform everyone that the ship is completely without electricity. The diesel engines are still running, but the generator and electrical power are lost. Some crew members start to panic. They claim the ship is cursed because Halcyon didn't let us christen it. Others gripe that this isn't the christening that doomed us, but the mission to find the Titanic. It's a graveyard that shouldn't be disturbed, they say. What if it's ghosts? One of the crew asks. At that moment, there's a high-pitched squeal from inside the cockpit. Everyone jumps, but it isn't a banshee. It's Otis, standing in the back. He's crying. Mathis steps over to him and yanks him by the arms. What are you doing out of bed? This meeting is for adults only. Otis explains that he heard the commotion. Everything was dark in his room and hallway. He wanted to see what was happening. He didn't expect to hear us discussing ghosts. I assure Otis that there are no ghosts. The crew is just sorting out some issues with the electronics. Otis 
shakes his head. But I heard voices. Mathis grabs the boy's hand and leads him out of the cockpit. That's enough. Time for you to get back in bed. But the boy resists. I'm serious, Uncle Mathis. I heard voices. I tell Mathis to stop. I don't want to admit it, but I'm spooked too. I want to hear what Otis had witnessed. The boy then describes hearing voices coming from the lifeboat. The lifeboat? I suddenly worry that some of the crew are readying our only lifeboat to abandon ship. Cowards. If they cut loose now, the rest of us will be doomed if there's a true emergency. I leave Hicks in charge of the wheel and sprint down the port deck toward the stern. Mathis, Otis, and some of the others are right behind me. Along the way, we have to cling tightly to the railing. The wind and seas have returned, even fiercer than before. We must be on the backside of the storm. Eventually, we make it to the aft deck, where the lifeboat is secured. Sure enough, as Otis had described, we can hear voices inside. Except, they aren't cowardly crew members abandoning ship. It's a VHF radio. It's picking up chatter from the Coast Guard in nearby ships. The small vessel's electronics must not be affected by whatever's happening with the main ship. The crew cheers. We're saved. I clamber into the boat and grab the radio. Mayday! Mayday! This is offshore account requesting immediate Coast Guard assistance. I hold my breath, waiting for a response. But there's none. I turn back to the crew and shake my head. Even though we're picking up distant signals, the lifeboat radio's broadcast range is limited. We must be outside of contact. Then, suddenly, the radio comes back to life, but the transmission is garbled. Of course, they need our coordinates, but we don't have them. So I give them our last known position. It's from hours ago, but it's a breadcrumb. It'll give the search and rescue team somewhere to start. For now, we'll have to hunker down until they arrive. Hopefully the ship will hold together. In the meantime, we'll keep trying to reboot the ship's electrical system. As the crew returns to their stations, Mathis yanks Otis aside. Were you playing in the lifeboat? He screams. Otis cowers, a look of fear in his eyes. I was looking for life preservers. Mathis's hand grips tight in anger. I should never have brought you on this trip. Otis pulls against his uncle's strong grip. I'm sorry, Uncle Mathis. Really? Mathis cocks his arm back to smack Otis, but I reach out and grab him. That's enough, Mathis. The Wall Street big shot spins to face me. Stay out of this doesn't concern you. I adjust my posture, reminding him I'm slightly taller. Otis was just following orders. I asked him to ready the life preservers. I'm not sure many people have ever spoken to Mathis like that. He looks like he isn't sure whether to turn and run or hit me. Instead, he grins. If you ever touch me again, you're fired. I tell him if he ever tries to hit a child again, he won't be around 
to fire me. Just then, a wave crests over the stern and sweeps across the deck, almost knocking Otis off his feet. Get inside, I yell at them. Within moments, another wave swamps the bow. Zero two hundred hours. A status update from the crew. Engines are still puttering along. Electronics and navigation are dead. Water is knee-high in the engine room, and the bilge pumps can't keep up. It's only a matter of time until the engines stop and we're dead in the water. At that point, we'll be a sitting duck. Waves will converge on us from every angle. I order all hands to the engine room to bail out as much water as possible. Zero, three hundred hours. The engines are officially dead. We're powerless in the water, and the backside of the storm is even worse. I estimate that the ship will only stay afloat for a couple more hours. I call everyone to the bridge again and give them the bad news. Mathis can't stop shaking his head. But it's brand new! It's the most advanced boat ever! I point out that the ocean floor is littered with the most advanced boats ever, including the Titanic. 0310 hours. I give the order to man the lifeboat. Unlike the Titanic, we are fortunate to have one that's large enough for everyone on board. 0315 hours. The crew piles in and hunkers down. I'm about to cut the boat loose when I hear a scream. It's Mathis. He's looking around frantically. Otis! He's gone! My breath catches. I worry he was swept overboard, but someone would have heard him scream. He must be on board. I order everyone to stay put. I'll search the boat. I tell them if I don't make it back in 10 minutes, cut loose and wait for rescue. I hustle as fast as I can around the deck, searching for Otis. The wind and waves make it nearly impossible to see. Otis! Otis! I yell. There's no answer, so I duck inside and canvas the interior. Engine room, cargo holds, crew quarters. I begin to fear the worst. 0320 hours. I'm about to give up and return to the lifeboat when I find the boy curled up under the chart table on the bridge. What are you doing? Otis blinks at me, wearing his skipper's hat. I... I wanted to stay with the ship. That's what captains do, right? I smile. This kid is braver than many sailors I know. I point to his head. Luckily, you're not this boat's captain. I pick up Otis, sprint back to the stern, and lift him into the lifeboat. I take the hat off my head. Take care of your uncle and the crew, Otis. You're the captain now. I put the captain's hat on his head. It's too big for him, but the kid grins as big as a whale shark. Aye, aye, captain. A look of relief washes over Mathis. He turns to me. You aren't coming with us? I shake my head. Like Otis said, my duty is to the ship. Besides, there's still a chance it can stay afloat and be towed to port. Mathis reaches out and shakes my hand. Thank you. Sorry about calling you a sea monkey the other day. I owe you a big bonus if we make it. I hold my hand up, cutting him off. 
Not if, it's when we make it to port. I smile and release the pin holding the lifeboat to the deck. It slides onto the heaving ocean. I watch as it drifts away from the foundering ship. Zero four hundred hours. Wind gusts are topping out at 80 knots. It's just me left on the ship. The deck and bridge are completely empty. The water sloshes around my ankles. The ship creaks and groans under the extra mass in its holds. I try the radio for the hundredth time, but it's still dead. I desperately want to send a message to Kathy. If I make it back, I'll be ready to settle down. Even to have some kids. I'll never abandon our ship again. As I'm fiddling with the channels, something bangs into my ankle. It's cold and hard. I jump. It looks like a juvenile shark nosing around in the shallow water. Then I realize it's a bottle of champagne. It must have come unstowed from the galley. Zero four ten hours. I pop the cork and take a swig. The cold bubbles tickle my mouth and throat. After a moment, I feel the liquid grow hot in my belly like a flare. Even here, on a sinking ship in the middle of the North Atlantic, the bubbles lift my spirit. They give me hope that everything will work out. Sure, the ship is going down. Probably no one will reach me, but I can't stop smiling. I take another mouthful and sit down in the icy water. I scribble this last entry. My body is numb, but my cheeks and stomach are warm from the wine. The ship will break apart in a few minutes. Perhaps the debris and I will come to rest somewhere near the Titanic. I think about Kathy and the good times we had. I think of Otis, who will carry on the tradition of good sea captains. The water rises. Here at Superstitions, we're no stranger to nautical beliefs. We've heard about the hazards of whistling aboard a boat and the foreboding omen of rats abandoning a vessel. Together with christening ships, those are just a few of the many mystical practices used by sailors over the years, and for good reason. Sea travel was once one of the deadliest activities in ancient times. Even today, with our modern safety advances, close to 2,000 people die on boats every year. It's no wonder seafarers have grasped for anything that might keep them safe on the water, including praying to the sea gods. Ancient Greek boatmen prayed to Poseidon and blessed their boats with water. Babylonians slit the throat of an ox, while Vikings and Polynesians are said to have turned to human sacrifice. In Christian societies, the act of sprinkling holy water on boats became popular and was dubbed christening. In the 1400s, the English moved away from water and turned instead to wine. For a time, they used mainly red varietals. It wasn't until the 1800s that they tried champagne. From that moment on, it 
was a hit. Not only did the pressurized bottles make for a more dramatic christening, but sailors hoped it would be a more fitting sacrifice to the sea gods. Perhaps the divine would appreciate the extra luxury. Or just maybe, the taste of champagne would make the sea gods a little tipsy, and they'd spare the ship and those on board. Thanks for listening to Superstitions. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Adam DeSilva, with writing assistance by Stacey Nemec and Greg Castro, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petrus. I'm Alastair Murden. Thank you.